Welcome to Decolonize Your Destiny podcast. I'm your host, Ingrid LaFleur. Today, we are talking about decolonizing our communication with guest Onyx Ashanti. Onyx is a talented creative technologist, brilliant thinker, and my brother from another mother. He not only 3D prints and plays an exoskeleton skeleton musical instrument, but will teach people about 3D printing at a drop of a hat. We often engage in hours-long conversations about the theories he is currently experimenting with, and today I get to share one of those conversations with you. Welcome, Onyx. Thank you. Hey, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Good, good. Okay, so let's first begin with what you are wearing. Our audience might not be able to see it, so let's try and describe it. <laughs> well, um, you know, I've, I've been working on this system for a while. It's... Uh, to explore what is, uh, what can music be? You know, what can music be in regards to like um, being a language, right? So uh, it's, I gave myself a process by which I explore this question. And part of that process is to iterate towards um, being able to wear the music, to be able to talk with it, right? So, um, it's gone through a few stages and it's got many more stages to go, but the stage that it's at now is as a 3D printed um, body mesh. So uh, I have a 3D printer at home and so you can use different um, kinds of polymers, sometimes plastics, sometimes, sometimes plastics made of petroleum, sometimes plastics made of cornstarch, sometimes, you know, um, polymers that were, you know, were made in the lab. Polymers are type of plastic. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, plastics come from polymerization. Okay. More so than anything. And so um, I have a few different plastics. One of them's like rubber, so that's soft, and so that lets me make a body mesh that's uh, that's soft. It's like a skin. The inside surface feels like snake skin because of the way the the pieces that touch the skin are printed. Mm. And so it makes sound as I move. Uh, I think you can hear it a little bit. Yeah, maybe closer to the mic. Oh yeah, I could I could just turn it up a little bit. Basically. Okay. There we go. <laughs> so. And so when he plays, it lights up as well in different places, um, and he's playing with his left hand just then. Yeah, that was yeah, and that was the left hand. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it registers what my knuckles are doing right now, but it also registers my voice and uh, soon my feet and different other sensors. How does it register? Do you have sensors all over? Yes, uh, each knuckle has a little sensor on it that when I put pressure on that knuckle, then it it'll uh, it'll trigger a, a noise into a um, into a filter very depending on where my hand is. In terms of the angle. Yes. So you can hear it getting slower, and then you can hear it getting faster as I move my hand around, right? And so each knuckle is a golden ratio from the next knuckle, right? So it goes along the, the lower knuckles of the hand, all from the thumb over to the pinky, and then it kind of wraps back around to the knuckle of the, uh, the upper knuckle of the thumb around to the pinky on the upper knuckles. So it's kind of, uh, so the golden ratio uh, aspect is what makes it sound like 
rain and wood and glass and things like that. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that all yeah. this time. Yeah. And oh. you have sensors on your head as well. You have like this kind of mask slash helmet kind of piece uh, with a mouthpiece. Can you explain to me what's going on with your head? Are you, is it responding to brainwaves like before? Or? Yes, uh, yeah, this is, um, I wanted to play around with how, how to be able to use brain, um, you know, um, reading brain activity uh, and to kind of get used to hearing brain activity as a daily meditation, you know, so that so that the uh, so that the sound is is there as a kind of uh, adjunct to feeling, in a way. The sound of our brain activity. Yeah, it like I can turn this on too. Uh, I haven't turned it on yet. Um, it makes more of a kind of ticking sound right now because. Um, you know the electrodes are also printed, so they're plastic as well. So I'm uh, experimenting with getting a better signal, but still using printed electrodes because I'm very much into the printed aspect of it. Uh, but um, I have that reading my brain activity, but I also have uh, one for my voice, which if I turn it on, it's just going to turn into feedback. So we'll just leave the, the voice one off. But it also uh, listens to my voice and. Um, and all of these sounds have this similar pulse thing, including the brain activity. So I wanted, I wanted the, um, the mesh that I have on my head to not hide uh, its function. I wanted it to be on display. I didn't want it to look medical, you know. I wanted it to look what I feel like fresh is right now at my current mindset and my cur current skill level fresh yeah it's like the function is there it's been there but when it comes out into the world with everyone else it has to be dope because it has to respect that this is social space and that it is different and that that can be anxiety inducing for some people at at some times so if the design of the system says its truth immediately you know that's it's that's a that's a, a kind of conversation that i have with spaces you know if the design of a system says its truth immediately immediately it's like in other words like for instance like with the um with the way that the that that the different colors um are are on my face and the front part of my head one thing that i was very um that I, I wanted the minimum amount of material on my face while still being able to provide the function. Mm -hmm. And I also made sure that, uh, say for instance, that there are no horn-like uh, aspects of the design. There's no fang-like aspects of the design. You see, that's a, that's a consideration of the kind of public, uh, common, you know, agreement you know that if mm. you're walking around with horns and things on there's, that can that can say something and that might mean something different in another culture but you know i know what it would mean in this one right so i designed with uh you know with geometric shapes you know lots of circles and then the lines that join them 
you know, so that when, so that if you look at it, you see this shape leads to this shape, leads to this shape, and that they all have a function, as well as being able to be something like fashion. Yes, because it's, uh, it's covering your elbow, even your throat, your chest, your back. Um, so it's almost like a suit of armor that is like covering. And it yeah. feels like every time I see you, it's growing yeah. <laughs> on its own. So I know that you walk around your neighborhood and just Detroit and other cities wherever you're visiting wearing uh, this piece. What are the reactions? And I know that you traveled recently flying and oh, you decided yeah. to wear it through security. I'm just curious, what are people's reactions? Well, you know, when I when I wore it to the airport, it was uh, because increasingly I'm going to, although I have entertained the idea of having a, um, some just a some flight body wear that is infinitely simple so that it doesn't stress anybody out in that space. Um, but it is something that is coming. So, uh, so I, I wore it to the airport uh, last month when I went on a trip uh, to go play. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was open pretty much from the time I came to the, to the thing. So everybody, you know, so they already knew I was coming. And then I showed it to them and we went in the little room and they investigated it and then another person investigated it and then they were like, okay, cool. And, you know, then I put it back on and got on my <laughs> flight, you know? So, you know, there were no wires in it, things like that, right? Mm. All that stuff goes in the bag. I see. You know, so, um, so you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I don't know, it's like, you know, people usually allow me to, uh, to be you know, so in that space, it's like, you know, I kind of also remember that I'm a street performer as well. So, you know, that's a, you know, that's a thing. So it's like, it's not just going out and just wearing, you know, strange gear. It's that, oh, I'm also a street performer. And so I might just be playing under a bridge or maybe I'll go play club or maybe I'll just go and and uh, take a walk and make sound as I go or whatever but that's something that I'm very interested in getting back into as as a way of kind of like also becoming more and more comfortable in the public space and being able to just be this all the time wherever I go you know and it seems like it's you're creating like a new language as you mentioned before be, based on what you're wearing and you're communicating to people in a very particular way. Do you think people are receiving that? That what you're trying to communicate? Yeah, yeah. How do you know? Because, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't really do small talk anymore. So it's like usually, you know, we just, you know, whenever I get a chance to chat with anyone, we just jump straight into something that just ain't small talk. And so, you know, I, you know, I show up places, you know, where no one is expecting somebody to come in on some weird shit today, you know, and then it happens. And in that moment, you know, 
in, and in almost all of those moments, there's no camera on. There's no, you know, it isn't like hidden camera or, you know, one of those, you know, some, some thing to wind people up, you know. It's like, you know, someone, oh, what's that? Oh, it's a, and I'll tell them, you know, something I'm working on. I've been, uh, you know, I'm working on building some stuff. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. Oh, you know, thanks. And maybe we'll have a longer conversation or maybe we won't, you know. I mean, I, I worn it, um, I went home to visit my family in Mississippi <laughs> and I put on everything and we went to Walmart. <laughs> yeah, I went to Walmart. I had to get some stuff, but I just put my stuff on first, you know. And how was that? It was dope. It was like, you know, you know, people were looking, but at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm looking for coffee. So it's like, you know, it's like, okay, somebody's wearing something weird. Okay. You know, and, you know, it just kind of passes until somebody says, hey, what's that? And then, mm-hmm. you know, I try to break it down in like 10 seconds, you know, so that everybody else that might be listening mm-hmm. can all just kind of be like, oh, okay. And mm-hmm. then, you know. <laughs> and just move on. Yeah. I mean, I know that you're just definitely disrupting these social spaces and, probably creating new portals in people's minds because you've planted seeds just by just by a person seeing you um a a new possibility has arisen in their life right so i i don't know if you know this about me but i write down quotes of what you say oh really (laughs) (laughs) so um i'll start with this one uh we were always transhuman, we just forgot. And then another quote is, tech is what humans secrete. Oh yeah. <laughs> Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I mean, in, as, a, as a condensed little narrative, you know, I had, you know, my early 20s phase and that was punctuated by uh, bouts of, you know, depression and blah, 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 blah. And so, long story short, um, uh, a thing that I started playing with was um, was to was this idea of a of a of a uh, possibility matrix, hmm. right? And so the way that it works is it's, it's a it's a scaffolding, it's a belief construct. It's not a belief system. It's not a it's not a whole system at all. It's more like an outline. It's like a super simple thing. It doesn't in, it doesn't um, doesn't conflict with anyone else's belief construct. It's completely of the dimension of of belief, right? And so it's a scaffolding that I use to um, to um, consider what mind and reality and space time are, right? And so it's basically like this. I'm gonna see how quickly I can knock it out break it down okay so at the at the core of all there is an infinite possibility matrix the simultaneity of all possible states um, and there is a core polarity in this simultaneity that of an urge towards a what if towards novelty and towards and the other is an urge towards memory of exploring novelty and in this polarity would emerge space-time as a um, as a place to construct memory, right? To create artifact, right? So then that makes the human construct 
uh, a, du a, a polarity. There's the space-time interface, which is the touching, hearing, seeing, ego thing. And then there is, at the, at the event horizon of the possibility matrix, there is a corporation of urges uh, that, uh, that we'll call a self with a sans-serif S. And we'll call the space-time interface uh, a self with a uh, serif S. And there's a, there is a conduit in between called intuition. And in this conduit, there is a quantum temporal programmable buffer called a mind, and it is completely programmable because humans can believe anything. Mm -hmm. So that, and, and what that actually means, as well as the stupid things that, that people can believe, is that when humans believe things properly, technology, emer technology emerges. All, in all cases, when they believe things properly, when they believe things properly, meaning that, meaning that, a thought can support the can be a support structure for another thought that can be built upon it, mm. which can then support it. Now, if the if the if the if the core thought is weak, then no complexity can be built on it. Right. That makes sense. So. This is a quantum temporal programmable buffer. So the, the thing with the music is if that the, that the human mind also has a special relationship with, um, with music because music is space-time modeling. Hmm. It's all about time and space. It is, it is uh, where we model possibility. That's why we like music that, that tickles our our, our curiosity and you know it's like it it twists us in these different ways right that uh, a kind of music that uh, could convey information uh, in these resonant structures would um, would interact with that in a more field phenomenal uh, way than a uh, than this linguistic model of information transduction so Technology is, I mean, everything is technology, mm. you know, food, love, uh, clothes, uh, child rearing, agriculture. It's not just digital technology. Mm. We, we, technology is to us what honey is to bees. Awesome. Technology is to humans what honey is to bees. That breaks that down. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, okay, another quote, and this is back to language. Change the, excuse me, change the language, change the destiny. Walls in our minds built by words. Hmm. <laughs> You're impressed by yourself? Yeah, I like that. Okay. <laughs> I really, um, of course, really into change the language, change the destiny. Um, there's a famous Kenyan writer, uh, please forgive me if I mess this up. Um, Gugi Watiango, uh, he's a Kenyan writer, and he talked about how decolonization begins with the language, um, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because we're thinking, like right now, we're speaking and thinking in the colonizer's language, mm -hmm. English, right? That is not, I mean, as a black American, I suppose that it has become our native tongue, but it is not indigenous. Right. 
um, to the people that make up us. <laughs> Gosh, we're a little complicated with our mixtures. Um, but uh, so it, 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 that really resonated with me in thinking, okay, if we change the language, then that is like step one to decolonizing. But for him, that meant going into more of a the tribal language. Um, um, maybe, possibly, most likely, his first language. Um, and for us, as U.S. Americans, what would that mean, right? But I really love how you talk about sound as a new language and how this is, creates a new way of communicating. Can you share that with us? Well, you know what's interesting is that I've been absorbing as much information online as I can that's you know and it's uh, you know it's all so interesting and so it's like some of that information is in relation to um, you know the fractal nature of African cultures mm -hmm. right and the um, network routing aspects of African drumming right uh, I watched a couple of TED talks uh, on it and then you know read uh, Ron Eglash you know and so, um, and read some other stuff. But uh, there's, a, there's an aspect of language that uh, I got from studying Malcolm, um, Marshall McLuhan, mm. right? Uh, the guy who came up with med the medium is the message. And uh, he was basically saying that the medium of television, which is what he was talking about, uh, was the actual message. Everything that's on the television is irrelevant. It's the television itself. And so he, when he talked about the Western mind, he spoke about it being dominantly visual, right? And, uh, and then, um, the, then with the, with movable tap, with movable type, you know, that the alphabet itself, the letters don't actually mean anything, so it's completely programmatic and it's unique for that reason, right? So the thing, that's, the thing that irks me or even scares me about English is the thing that's also its, uh, its main strength, is that you can put these symbols together interchangeably and make images pop in people's heads. Mm -hmm. You know, you can say C, and you, you, mean, you mean C like eyes, do you mean C like the letter C? But if I see C-A, now I'm, are you saying California, are you Ka, you know, that, I put a T after that, instantly an animal pops in your head. I get rid of the T, I put an R there, a vehicle pops in your head, you see? So that very strong feature is the thing that is, uh, it can be detrimental when you, this was the thing that Sun Ra got me interested in hmm. when I started studying him. He, was, uh, he, he spoke very much about, um, about uh, language in general, the English language in particular, you know, uh, you know um, the, um, the, how different words sound the same but are spelled differently, but the brain still uh, cross-pollinates its meanings into this word because it sounds the same as, a, as another word, right? Mm. So I started looking at English 
more from that point of view, like, oh, okay, this is a programming language. That's what this is. Okay, so that means that, that, that this language is based on 26 interchangeable bits. And then, uh, then, the, uh, and then the voice has like 56 phenomes, right? So those are the different sounds that an English speaker can make with their mouth, right? Now, some African languages have like 100 phenomes, right? Mm -hmm. So it says to me that this, that using a, that a linguistic model has its strengths and weaknesses, but a model that would kind of keep the, um, that granularity, like and increase it, like the different, there's, there's a lot of dimensions of, of how someone speaks, but there's not enough, and that's the reason why miscommunications happen so often in, the, in this language. But music, when it's done precisely, when it's, you know, I mean, precise to the, to the intention of the person expressing it, is, gets straight to the point, to a point, to, to a point in a way that no other medium can because you can experience it in a kind of surround space, you know, and you can actually make it, you know, happen in that way. So I felt, I, it, as a way to kind of condense all that, it feels like if we were to speak with beats, we would say some completely other shit, mm. you see? And beats, I mean, how many dimensions of beatness, of beats are there, you know? I mean, if you, because the minute you say, oh, beats are this and this, then that instantly opens up a wormhole to, oh, but then there's also this, and oh, uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, you know? Like, you could tell a lot about a person by, the, by, the, by what's in their playlist. Mm. I'm sure. Um, you, that's so interesting. I'm, I'm wondering about the physicals. We sometimes talk about how you maintain yourself physically to stay focused on this work and to kind of intuitively like really think through these theories. You keep a very clean, open mind, um, but you live a pretty disciplined, I think, life. Um, what are the, the things that you do in order to maintain and to like stay mm -hmm. focused? Well, I first, one of the things I think that is probably the most important is that for, I would, if I had to demark it in years, I would say from about 1992 till about 2010, I partied my ass off. I really, but when I partied, I partied, I was one of the musicians at the party, so I got paid to party. So that just made, meant that I really, really partied. And I was partying overseas and all this other stuff. And partied, party, party. So that, because I knew, thankfully, early, that I wanted to do something, I just didn't know what it was. You know, I could hear it, you know. So I knew, and when I was 25, I knew that it, I was gonna be at least 40 before anything really started popping. So that span of time from 25 to 40, I just lived it. 
I went all the way in so that by the time 40 came, I was so unbelievably completely over it, not because it was bad, but because I had done, I'd exhausted the novelty uh, in, in, the, in those scenes. It's, you know, it's, it's young people doing young things for the first time. I, you know, I'd already been doing it 20 years. I was, you know, so that wasn't interesting anymore. And so I could put that on the bookshelf and be like, ah, that was a great, that was a great era. So now, What's very interesting is how to, uh, you know, exploring these technologies uh, in a way that yields novelty, right? So there is no urge to hit the club or, or any of that stuff. There's no urge. It's like I think about that stuff and then I think to myself, but I could make something. And then I just... You know, I just make something at that point. So that can give off the same odor as discipline. <laughs> but, and there is discipline in there as well. To, you know, I'm joking. It's like, um, like I said, my study of Sun Ra, you know, while I was in Berlin, I spent a few years just, just Sun Ra talks and albums and movies and whatnot on repeat and kind of built a model of this alter destiny idea that he was um, about. And one of the things that I enjoyed about being able to absorb like 40 years of what he was doing is that he was never not all in. You never at any point felt like he was just kind of coasting along and, and whatnot, you know. And it just seems like, it seemed like the key to making anything happen is to just kind of be all in, right? So that as well, I guess it could, you know, you could see it as a kind of discipline, but it's more like a curiosity. <laughs> well, I'm sure for you, uh, and going all in is impressive all into itself. Most of us don't have the balls to do that, to dedicate our lives to an alternative, quote unquote, alternative way of being, alternative according to our social, cultural kind of norms, um, to, to adhere to that no matter what space you're in, uh, who you're talking to. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think, myself included, I have the wherewithal to, to go as far, I think, as you have gone with your art and your dedication to it and really explore, exploring it in a very 360 way. So it's not just about making the thing and, and the thing makes music. It's also about how people are interacting with it. So um, I, I, as friends, as being part of your friend group, we are often challenged to, um, one, uh, interact with you <laughs> and, um, and your machines, and, uh, and also to kind of uh, rethink our own work and our own art and how we produce it. Um, and I, you're definitely an inspiration to me. <laughs> so I, I have, um, I want to talk about 3D printing. Mm. You have a 3D printing studio, I want to call it. Well, hold, hold that thought on the 3D printer 
because to, oh. uh, in, um, in regards to um, to uh, my friends here who allow me to be weird, it's like it's very, it's un so unbelievably necessary because it's like there are places where it might be not just hmm. less easy to do, maybe just not possible. Like dangerous. You know, yeah, just dangerous, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, very easily. And it's like, especially my friends who let me be this around them and have all these crazy ass noises going on all the time. But then also just here in Detroit in general, you know, where I can just be walking around and just be, you know, down some side space, whatever. Everybody's always cool. The cops are always cool. People on the street are always cool. You know, everybody's, you know, and I know because I've been, I've lived in other places. They don't have to be. So it's very, it's, it's, it, it makes me want to make something that, that, that I can share with, share with them, share with everybody so that it, uh, to say thank you for letting me have this process in, mm. in, in your presence. Oh, I love it. But you're also, your, your presence in our lives gives us permission to be who we want to be authentically and fully, if that makes sense. I feel you. Yeah. And, and so I'm all about that. Just making sure that everyone can just be who they want to be because I want to be who I want to be. Mm -hmm. And I, that's real. <laughs> yeah, I want to be extremely free <laughs> to be me. So you do you, so I can do me. Exactly that. <laughs> um, so, okay, so 3D printing uh, is a, a form of decentralized production, uh, like ownership production. Uh, you, have multiple 3D printers, and uh, I've seen you uh, definitely stop what you're doing and just teach people on the fly and show them what a 3D printer is, and I, I really love that about you. Uh, can you tell us, what does 3D printing mean for our future? Well, I think that what what's happening is that we are, uh, along with this Marshall McLuhan thing I was mentioning earlier, we're using the previous age's words to describe our future, which is, you know, which is maybe just a natural part of the process, but it's also, you know, it cannot, like cannot. Bitcoin, it's not a coin, it's a key. You know, same thing with 3D printing. It's like, I think if people realize that it's uh, a primitive dimensional portal, to this computer dimension because I can have an idea, sketch it out on a piece of paper, go to this thing called a computer and go into a CAD program, make this on the screen with the mouse and the keyboard, hit print, and then it comes out of this machine that's sitting next to the computer. You see? So over time, uh, things complexify and we're in an age where things are complexifying faster and faster and faster, like it's folding in on itself. So, the, you know, like, like my compute, my printer is nine years. Oh no, wait, no, eight years old. That's like the Stone Age now. You know, I mean, it's like, I mean, my printer cost five hundred bucks back then as a kid. I could recreate my printer from scratch with much better parts for about seventy-five dollars. That's crazy. It's. The thing is, I'm obsessed with it. It's the most interesting thing I've 
ever encountered or even thought to encounter because we weren't programmed with 3D printers when I was a kid. There were no 3D printers. Uh, yeah, you know, you'd see the things with the robot factory stuff, but there was no programming of the idea of 3D printed shape. And then um, when I finally uh, saw Adrian Bowyer's video online, he's the guy who, who created the RepRap 3D printer. Hmm. And when I saw his video and he was explaining it um, using biomimetic properties that of the, um, the flower and the bee, hmm. that the flower needs the bee to, uh, to, to, um, to come and get the pollen to, to, to pollinate. So it offers the nectar. Mm. You see, so they both get something out of the exchange, mm -hmm. right? And so, by the same token, the 3D printer it prints things that are useful to the person who is um, using it. So, so uh, the way it's designed to be uh, built from parts from a hardware store is that it then propagates by way of you, you know, by you making useful things, and then the chances that someone else will build one or buy one or use one increase right so when i when you know i mean i kind of as soon as i saw that the materials didn't suck i was all in but then the materials just started just fractaling it's like i've got i designed the sensors they're made out of conductive plastic right uh the the, the um the mesh itself is a kind of elastomer called uh TPU, so that's one. It's super strong. I have it. Uh, I'm using it for uh, my on my feet. I've been wearing TPU foot mesh for five or six months now, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I use nylon, which is the same kind of nylon that fishing line is made out of, and it makes super strong parts, but that are also flexible but not stretchy. But if you print them solid enough, they're they're um, they're as uh, rigid as like another plastic, like ABS or something, like mm. what Legos are made out of, right? And so uh, the meditation for me was, can I make something for myself that is either better than something I could buy or just not possible to buy? Mm. And can it be of that you know, that's where the design thing has been coming in. It's like, can it be like something that I could wear that I'm not embarrassed to wear, you know? So it's, you know, just that question is, it's just such an interestingly shifting question, you know? What's fresh in what situation? And can you make something that could be fresh in a great majority percentage of those situations <laughs> you know like what does that even mean when you can just make that shit at home yourself i think that that's where the power lies right yes. and that's why our future has shifted because yeah. now we have all these tools to be able to do it on our own without relying on a central kind of system um the central systems are already in the process i mean the central systems are already in the process of, uh, of packing it in. But before that happens, the, you know, it hasn't even gotten ugly yet. 
you know, as that system transitions to this next inevitable stage, uh, which will be, you know, complete decentralization. There'll be a lot of, you know, there'll be a lot of corporations, but there'll also be, uh, you know, as you already know with, uh, with your uh, investigations of this crypto space as well, you know, that, um, that you know, corporations will just be apps that, that are running, you know, that, you know, there are already places like Estonia and, you know. When you said corporations are running apps, my brain immediately went to the matrix and like the <laughs> machines take over. It's funny, but not funny. It's kind of real. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, what was I going to say now? <laughs> I really get freaked out for a second. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, I, I wanted to, uh, <laughs> I, I completely forgot what my next thought was going to be. But I wanted to think, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the Afro future. Hmm and how you would be seen as an Afrofuturist. And, you know, as a futurist, you're already on the edge of things. Uh, in my mind, I remember when 3D printing was coming about, and it was like a rumor. Mm. <laughs> like, you could make something, and it's 3D, and yeah, you yeah, print yeah, it yeah. out. And my brain had no way of trying to figure out, like, what that would look like. It's what like, does the machine it? look like? Like, I had like, nothing. What does that even mean? What does it even mean, right? Yeah. Um, but then to literally be in the hood with a 3D printer studio as a resident, not necessarily like as an institution or a school or whatever, um, I think is the Afro future because I do imagine more and more people having 3D printers in their homes yes. and being able to use them. And, and this is why I want such a high level of digital literacy for um, our youth. I give up on our generations. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but you know, Afrofuturism has become a trend, and uh, and it's gone in twenty million different directions. I think, especially since uh, it's become so aesthetically seductive, people kind of stop there, right? Um, recently, uh, you said on a panel, Afrofuturism is exploring novelty and memory through rhythm. And then Ife, Ife Best, our, a friend of ours, um, followed up and said, until the rhythm changes the movement, it's not going to change. Uh, so can you explain what you mean by Afrofuturism as exploring novelty and memory through rhythm? Well, the, in that possibility matrix construct, um, novelty is what we could call the future, and memory is what we could call the past, and that all that is is that space in between in our interaction with this polarity, right? So with, uh, with Afrofuturism, I see that modulation and it's how it's modulated, you know? It's like, it's, um, like say for instance, like, uh, like a DJ set, you see? You know, you throw on you know, you have, you throw in the Timbaland, you throw in some Drake, you throw in some Cardi B, but then you throw in Fela Kuti, you see, it's like you've, you are making a statement within the music at that mm. point. You are, you know, and 
it's one that's distinct to anyone that's listening because mm. of the production values of those first three and then mm. to go into this and its historical reference and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Political. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like there's already this, this um, we already have a, a sensitivity of, of, the, uh, of this uh, past and future modulation, right? But with English, we're only describing it I'm sorry. <laughs> with English, we're only describing it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's like with rhythm, you know, Feel our it. whole being mm -hmm. vibrates to it. Mm -hmm. You know, so when I think of uh, vibration, you know, we talk in these, uh, say, quantum mechanical terms or in scientific terms in some way of vibration, but then to overlay that with the idea of a groove, of a, you know, of a, of a Sun Ra aesthetic of an Alice Coltrane aesthetic, of a Parliament Funkadelic interaction with the sound, mm -hmm. you know? It's like, I feel like there's, there's a thing that, that keeps emerging in uh, the collective Afro consciousness that, uh, you know, it keeps, generating new novelty, right? And so it would just be very interesting if that novelty producing mechanism had a computational output, mm. you see? Where it's not the description that the groove itself is the, is the thing and that that thing can, like, I've, I've always had this, this dream that my first interaction with properly constructed um, AI that I understand would be in the service of, of taking like Coltrane's discography and analyzing it and then taking that analysis and applying it to all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Applying that analysis to polymer research, to, uh, you know, that it's an algorithm through which things could be looked at uh, a certain way. You know, you know what I mean? It's like it's these, fun. you know, it's like it's this thing is it's already there. It's, and it's uh, it's, you know, now and we have all of this recorded history simultaneously right now. So we have this comprehension. I mean, that's, and when I say we, I mean, all we all humans, we mm. all have this comprehension. Mm. But there is an there is an Afro flavor as distinct from an African flavor, as distinct from a Senegalese uh, to South African flavor distinction. Mm -hmm. You see, like there's, you know, there are these, um, you know, the, 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 the groove tilts certain ways and tilts certain ways at certain times, right? So it's, it seems to me that, and I mean like, I've even thought about it generationally, you know, because obviously, you know, young people can uh, can attach themselves to some 3D printed blah, blah, blah. But for, I mean, I'm almost 50, you know, it, you know, there has to be, it can't just be like, oh, well, this is all something for the kids. No, man, you know, it's like, I feel like there has to be this kind of a, 
language investigation, collaborative language investigation, you know? I've even been exploring um, I, what I'm calling right now gibberish, but also glossolalia, you know? What's glossal? You know, it's where you speak uh, with syntactical, uh, you know, momentum, but without meaning. You know, I like to, you know, find, I'm, I'm also exploring beatboxing, but to find out where, you know, that taking away the idea that this vocal system is specifically for speaking English and more for like, more like it's the most sophisticated synthesizer in nature, hmm. you see? And to explore that, you know, I found that uh, that I've I've done that long enough uh, at times that I uh, that English felt secondary, and so it's like um, you know this this thing, but then having a meaning matrix that's still in my mind, say for instance, translating to English, but I'm not looking at English on a, on, a, on a page. I'm not looking at it on a screen. I'm hearing a pulse in headphones or in a speaker. And it feels like that would be a very interesting point multi-generationally if it can happen at a, especially at a collective moment where it's like, you know, everybody's just making sound, you know, you can still talk, you can sing if you want, but, you know, I think that the reason why many ideas of um, this thing that this language calls a utopia don't work is because the language that's used to describe them isn't precise enough, you see. So it's not even about, it's like, even the, even the word utopia describes an idea that if you were to hear it in music, you would, it would obviously be funny or it would obviously be like a whimsical or something. It wouldn't be substantial, mm. you see? Mm. So it's, you know, it's, I, I look at Afrofuturism more like, like a descriptor that someone else would use. I've used it myself on my own projects and processes, but I find that calling it sono-cybernetics is much more useful for where it's going. And then let the Afrofuturistic descriptor be put onto it, uh, onto that process trajectory. So then as the process e e uh, turns into something else, that's like, whoa, what's that? That that is sono-cybernetics as well. And by way of it being sono-cybernetics, that there is this Afrofuturist lens, you know, reference, uh, um, reference space. It's its own kind of memory module that makes any sense. It does. Yeah, I mean, I've always said that Afrofuturism has 
uh, or the Afrofuture has always existed. And now we have a term to attach to the thing that we've already observed or produced or participated in in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so it is kind of like a, a container of knowledge and history that you can just access anytime you want. And I, I, I'm just so thankful to be living in this time period where Afrofuturism exists um, so that I can access so many different things and put them in and you know and bring them into this reality like mythologies and legends and cosmologies and people take me completely seriously in the conversation yeah yeah and it's like <laughs> yes why wasn't this when I was growing up because everyone thought I was a weird kid because I'm talking about Atlantis and Lemuria and um, you know past lives <laughs> reincarnation um, <laughs> but Afrofuturism says it's okay baby yeah yeah exactly you all right <laughs> say yes <laughs> So that's really great. I think um, it, it feels, you know, it feels to me like what Afrofuturism, you know, it's like there's kind of like a inner, you know, like I noticed like with the, there's like a meme face, you know, like a hmm, like <laughs> you didn't know, like you ain't know, you know, that thing, right? Mm. I feel like Afrofuturism, it needs to be that uh with us impressing each other uh mm. just like on a whim like oh by the way mm, drop some sh drop some shit like real quick just like maybe three people that person doesn't know it's like oh shit and then they just they just walk away just like mm, i just need to drop that for you you know i feel like i had this mm -hmm. this um this grand idea it's not even grand it's like easy but the way that you negate the uh, momentum of fascism is that every day has to be modeled on the technology that the love uh, parade uh, and the gay pride parade emerged, um, brought forth. This idea of having a parade to be your most authentic self, you know? So it's like, mm, yeah. this is what I'm about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, that thing, mm -hmm. you know? I feel like that, because there's, to me, there's a lot more of those people than there are the ones that need it to violently be their way, hmm. you know? And it's just more pleasurable. Yes, <laughs> which is just like a, a nice aspect of it. Yes. Uh, I remember what my question was because you brought up cryptocurrency. Mm. Uh, Onyx was the first person really to talk to me about Bitcoin, even though I remained lost for a couple years after that initial conversation. Um, but now I'm working within blockchain technology um, and cryptocurrency. So isn't that funny? Um, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> So you use Bitcoin and you like to get paid in Bitcoin. Can you just tell us a little bit of that process? Because I don't think a lot of us are living as deeply and connected to cryptocurrency as you are. Oh, okay. Well, um, I got into cryptocurrencies back in 2013. I'd been watching it for a couple of years. I even mined some like back in like 2009. I mean, but it just seemed like 
a pointless thing to be doing on my computer, so I just stopped doing it. You know, I didn't save any of it or any of that, right? But uh, after, you know, they shut down Silk Road, it popped up to 1200 bucks, and then it kind of fell off and came back up to about two, 200 or something in uh, 2013, around April. And so I got into it and also got into uh, some of the talks that Andreas Antonopoulos would uh, do, and he really explains things from this really useful programmatic point of view, right? And that was enough. It was like, and I just gotten paid and it took 30 days for a check to cash. I was like, never again. <laughs> I was like, no, no, that's not cool. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hearing it, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, uh, I just shifted everything over to Bitcoin, you know, and of course, you know, PayPal and things like that, you know, um, exploring what is it to live completely digitally, mm -hmm. right? So being realistic, I did, you know, I could do it all on Bitcoin, but that just seemed, I mean, I don't usually collect enough Bitcoin. I just, you know, I'm not really out chasing it like that. So I don't have loads. I'm just, you know, it's just nice when the value goes up while I do have something. It's like, okay, cool. Right. But um, I have done so mainly so that I can meditate on what it is you know, and it's a kind of, I mean, my own definition of what the blockchain is, it's a kind of participatory genome, you see? It's like this thing is, uh, it's, unco well, you can copy it, it's, it's, it's made to be copied, but it's, it's um, this, uh, this blockchain um, encrypting um, trajectory is increasingly efficient in all ways around it because uh, it represents value, mm -hmm. right? But it is, at its core, programmable money, mm. right? So it's very interesting to think about what does that even mean? Mm. You know, program, actually, frictionless programmable money. You know, it's like, and then you take the money part away because it's actually more than money. So then it's frictionless programmable value. Well, okay, well, that's a whole other, you know, uh, rabbit hole. And so as I've, uh, as I've explored it and watched it dip and go up exponentially again and then dip and go up exponentially again over and over again, uh, it just occurred to me that anyone that really wants to be somewhat happy in any way in their life should at least be uh, somewhat conversant in what cryptocurrencies are and what they mean because there's a generation of young people right now who will never set, they don't, a bank? Come on. There's 15, there's 15 year olds right now, they'll never set foot in a bank. They'll never know what a bank account is. It'll always be digital. And all the state coins, they'll all exist. And all the altcoins, they'll all exist. The personal coins, those will exist. The corporate coins, those will exist. You know? And if we, if we, you know, if, I, I don't know, in my mind, if we, and I mean like the wide we, the collective of people on this planet, uh, design rituals around um, what this participant, how 
can this participatory genome be abstracted? Is it only, are you only looking at it through a Python script or through some C++ interface or some VR, uh, you know, hologram, you know, how, how do we interact with this, with this thing and then design, um, design things that are synergistic with it for as long as it's useful to people as it seems to be, you know, to design like these synergistic ideas. Like for me, this sound mm -hmm. uh, system is synergistic with Bitcoin because Bitcoin emerged at a time when the idea of a currency that no one could control even as a mythological idea was just foreign, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? But as it has imprinted itself on me, possibility within other realms uh, is much more tangible. And sometimes they cross-pollinate. The Bitcoin more often than not goes towards buying materials uh, that I use to design things which allow me to make Bitcoin, which goes back into buying more <laughs> components and stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's um, as far as a meditation, like not a study, you know, none of that. But as a meditation, I think it's not just a, uh, it's not just important to meditate on it as, oh, I should get in on this, but to meditate on it uh, as a as a form of logic. You know, it's like, okay, here is a, here is code that is designed to not trust anybody. Mm -hmm. And so trust is built because that uh, untrust, you know, because there is no trust. It's cryptographically designed to not have to rely on trust, right? So then you just have a, an, an unhackable trust system. What kinds of things can emerge, you know, um, in a space like that, you know. Uh, then, if we take, say, for instance, black. Black is an invention. We created that, mm -hmm. you know, in my model in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Before that, we were colored, we were other things. Black, in the 60s, we consolidated around it. Black Panthers, I'm black and I'm proud. It's an invention, right? Can it be encoded in a blockchain in a way that's reliable? So is, does anyone know what black is to a degree that it could be encoded in code? Hmm. Interesting. I don't have the answer. <laughs> well, I mean, according to Ron English, uh, the binary code is African. So it's like its very nature is African. Yeah. <laughs> is black. <laughs> yeah. Like the the invention of black as a is that me? We'll just turn that off. <laughs> <laughs> but um but it's it's interesting because black is also this um you know, it's this group thing, but then it also has a corporate aspect, but then it also has a military industrial aspect, but then it also you see what I'm saying? So like exploring this idea, then, uh, you know, um, 
blockchains that are beneficial for that defined group or groups, mm -hmm. that there can be a super simple core logic, you know, mm -hmm. that this is that, but this is, but you know, if you're from Atlanta, mm -hmm. we're more this, and if you're from, you know, over here, if you go to this type of church, you're more of that, you see. Mm -hmm. So it can specialize, but it's like, it's the kind of conversation where it's like, you know, are we, are we all black just because we're all of brown skin? What are the variables of this black, mm. you see? Is that term, which also has multiple other meanings in the English language, is that term still useful going into the future, mm. into futures? Mm. You know, yeah. how many other utterances that could come from this vocal synthesizer mm. could be a descriptor for this grouping? Yeah. You see, and then applying this kind of, you know, having uh, participatory blockchains. That's the thing that I'm very inter interested in is the idea of a blockchain that is participatory by every single member. So that means that the interface to the core logic has to exist. It has to be something beyond just English. It can't be read. It would have, but it would have to be programmatically. Uh, uh, reliable it would have to be you would have to be able to like program the entire logic of that particular chain through that particular interface vr opens up many avenues in that respect hmm. you know but the the thing is is that if you have this incredibly complex blockchain thing at, over here and then you have like a group of people who have absolutely no idea what that thing is how it works or why it's important other than what they saw in the news, mm -hmm. then you have a recipe for uh, a for it to not be as beneficial as proponents would think that it would be. If it is completely participatory, that anyone over the age of eight or nine should be able to play with the ABCs of their own blockchain the collective communal chains, you know, so that you have access to all of the chains and you understand them or comprehend them, I should say, uh, immediately while you're interacting with them. You know, you're like, oh, you know, kind of like the difference between a Timberland beat and a, um, a Timberland beat and a Neptune's beat. A Neptune's beat and a Hank Shock Lee beat. Hmm. You see, it's like, if I put a microphone in your face and said, tell me the difference between those, it's like, ah, the words fall apart, but you know the difference between those, you see? So that type of an interface to a blockchain logic, uh, then you're just making chains because they dope, you know? You could interchange the idea of a blockchain with a, with a sound form that's like a, kind mm -hmm. of like a podcast or something. Mm -hmm. But, and I'm just kind of freewheeling it with the, with this trajectory, although I am gonna write it down afterwards, or, you know. But the idea is that this, this ecosystem that has emerged in the last 10 years uh, with the blockchain and these ideas is, is a kind of key component to the, to the novelty that's coming. And it can be, um, it can be beautiful, you know, if we, I mean, 
trust, there's always going to be some bullshit. And the depth and quality and, and precision of the bullshit will increase just as much as the beauty and precision and awe of the really amazing, beautiful things mm -hmm. you see so in that space looking at these blockchain uh, modalities as things that's like you know what let me get into this and make it dope that comes back to the dope thing again because dope is something you share you know yeah I can think something's dope and that's cool but you always want to kind of like get in touch with your friend or your mom or somebody be like, yo, what you think about this? Oh, shit, what's that? Oh, my God. And it's like, yeah, you know, you know, yeah, you know, you want to be able to do that. You know, we we already have that. So then you apply that to blockchains. You apply that to electrical um, electricity and transportation. I won't say vehicles. That's a mm. word that means something. There are other ways to 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 move that aren't mm -hmm. a vehicle, mm -hmm. you see? It's like, there's, if there's that thing where it's like we are making, we are programming, and we, and it's all about, and I even thought about this as well. You know, like, let's say something un, you know, something horrible happens, and it's directed at me, let's say, for instance. And I thought about it, what would be really the way to do it? Because what would be the ideal thing to do in that situation? You know what it would be? That when you make your statement about that thing, mm -hmm. you just reach over and you put this thing right there in front of the camera or mic or whatever that's so unbelievably some other shit that no one even remembers what the hell they were talking about <laughs> before that thing. And every single time it happens, there has to be something that much doper. Like it just becomes like a, like a joke. Mm. Like, yo, blame something on him so we can see what, and then boom. Yo, boom, like that, you know, like, like, like dopeness can be like this, that, I don't know, it's like, it's like the, it's, what's, what is it like in, in Star Trek? Dilithium? Dopeness is the dilithium of Afrofuturism. Dope. <laughs> <laughs> so we're down to our last two questions. Um, please let our les listeners know, how can you decolonize on a daily? I would say, first... And I have to honestly just say this, developing a respectful relationship with, uh, with psychedelic plants. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's getting into weed now and there is a, a, a respect that one has to have for that too, but specifically psilocybin mushrooms, mm -hmm. uh, a respectful relationship, meaning, you know, I would suggest don't go in looking for anything, don't go in uh, just allow yourself to float amongst whatever you encounter in that space mm -hmm. and then parse that however you need mm -hmm. don't look to don't don't look to the movies don't you know none of that it's like because that's 
that's where a whole other realm of processing is happening in, in one's mind, and you mm -hmm. get a chance to really kind of go deep with it, mm -hmm. right? So that's the first thing, because without that, the, this, this social, cultural um, field that we're embedded in seems like all that there is, right? The psychedelics uh, kind of um, allow one to kind of tune into the other things that are also co-present, mm -hmm. right? So then that's, that's, you know, that's an ongoing thing, you know? So there's not like a, a moment where it, well, I mean, I guess there can be moments where it all makes sense, but that's not like, you know, it's just a kind of ongoing process where one learns oneself more and more and then takes, you know, and not to do that all the time either, but to take time to just really go into your own mind and just kind of like really parse. Cause it's like, that's, if, if there's like a, if there's like a dark corner in your brain uh, where you're scared to go, that's gonna be the very main dark corner that pops up when the shit hits the fan. Mm. That exact place is where the bad shit's hiding, right? So that's an ongoing, you know, meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would also say maybe after, at a certain point, I think that thinking or, or feeling more strongly and paying attention in, in dreams when, when, you know, when, when you remember them, mm -hmm. you know, when you realize you're in the dream, to not try to wake up, to, you know, to kind of, okay, I'm, I'm here, what is here, what is this, you know, and to explore this lucid space because I find that when I work, oh, sometimes I'll just zone out for a whole day thinking about something and it's not tying together. And usually it's that first, that maybe about eight seconds before I pass out is when the answer comes, but then I don't get up. I don't get up and draw it or write it down. I'm like, okay, that was what I was looking for. And I try to ride it into the dream space, hmm. right? And so then while I'm in the dream space, I can explore it and whatnot, you know, because after you get past all the wonderment at the beginning of um, exploring psilocybin, you know, then you can get into, the, into actually being able to use it mm -hmm. Right, and for me, I use it as a design space. I like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Fun fact: <laughs> uh, Detroit has the largest amount of black farmers of psychedelic mushrooms oh, yeah. in the nation. <laughs> oh, wow. and it's one of the things that attracted you to Detroit. Yes, 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 <laughs> Kalindi. E. So, last question. I'm all about the pleasure principle. You know, yes. I'm a pleasure activist. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know, how do you intentionally inject joy and pleasure into your life? I, I don't know. I've, I keep myself on a, on, on a, I have a, I have a really decent leash that I keep myself on. So it's like, Discipline. I, yes, I go, <laughs> you know, I like to go hard for like three months. You know, go hard, like pretty much day and night, just round the clock, do it, do it, do it. And then I like to take a season and just go and, you know, still do my stuff like I do, but, you know, on a beach or, or just go somewhere in street perform for a bit or just go mm -hmm. and, and 
chill out in the hillside somewhere or something, mm. you know? Just like take that time to just, and by the end of the a season of that, I'm completely over it. So then I'm really <laughs> ready to get back to doing some work. So I try to like, you know, um, I try to give myself little vacations every day. So, mm. you know, so I allow myself to snack endlessly, but you know, mostly nuts and things like that, not mm-hmm. candy or anything anymore. But, you know, I, if I, if I want to go do something, I allow myself to go do it. I just usually don't go do it because I'd rather be doing the, you know, be working on the things. Right. You know, so I try to give myself as many little, anytime I want a little break or I just don't want to do anything, I just stop. And I just, I might not do anything for three days, you know, so I just allow myself to be, you know, to just allow intuition to kind of, Mm. you know, run it. I think that's really important uh, because if you don't want to do it, you allow yourself to just stop and not do it. And our society, especially when it comes to work culture, you're supposed to just keep going. And if you stop, you're lazy, um, you're, you're not productive, right? And I think a lot of us feel that pressure to constantly produce, regardless of what our body says. It could be screaming, like I need sleep, and we're still gonna just keep going because we have to get it done. And getting it done feels productive, and then somehow, we feel better about ourselves, like we rest our value within that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that that piece of advice to just not do it because clearly you produce yeah. <laughs> and you're extremely um, efficient in your production as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's really great advice coming from someone like you who uh, I consider a genius. Uh, and uh, that's about it. Thank you so much for being on Decolonize Your Destiny, Onyx. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Ingrid. I'm glad we got a chance to, you know. <laughs> to record and document this conversation yeah. that we have so often on our own. And, uh, and for you guys, listeners, please tell me how you decolonize your destiny. Email me at decolonizeyourdestiny at gmail.com and remember to invest in your liberation and decolonize your destiny. I am your host, Ingrid LaFleur. Until next time. Scene. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it shut off. Look at that. It didn't. Yay. I don't know how long it lasted for, but it... I think it was, I think it recorded all the way to the end that you just know. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then, maybe I shouldn't touch anything. I wonder if I should, um, record, I'm about to record my episode zero real quick. What's, What's episode zero? Where I describe what it is. what this podcast is. Uh-huh. <clears throat> episode, episode zero. Hi, welcome to Decolonize Your Destiny. I'm your local Afrofuturist, happy pleasure activist, and decolonizing agent, Ingrid LaFleur. I began this podcast because my work centers on liberating black bodies. That means 
that no matter the race or background, everyone must find liberation in order for black people to be free. But how are we defining liberation when we live in a colonized state that upholds institutional racism and other oppressive forces that haunt our every move? How do we liberate and decolonize our mind, body, and soul? And what does it mean to decolonize? Well, decolonization is the process of becoming self-sovereign, and this is where the power lies. It is the untangling of the colonizer's limitations placed on our minds and bodies by unlocking and remembering indigenous wisdom that lives within us all. Although the colonization process in the United States began centuries ago, the tenets of colonization have been normalized and woven into the social, economic, cultural, and political fabric of our nation. The colonized mind controls what we eat, use for medicine, what we read, how we speak to each other, how we love on each other, and process our emotions, and even more. Every single part of our lives have been colonized with the intention of creating subordinates that have been assimilated into a system that only privileges a select few. So it's time to get free. Decolonize Your Destiny helps to create that roadmap to new futures and explores liberating tools to increase our power and self-determination. So join us in this journey to decolonizing our destiny. Welcome. There you go. <laughs>